Our Bible reading for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to that, it's the last section in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 7. Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when, you, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for bringing us together this morning in this place. Thank you for your grace and mercy towards us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice to be your people by grace. And Father, we thank you for your word by which you reveal yourself to us. And we ask now, Lord, that by the Spirit who inspired these words, you will speak, speak afresh into our minds, our hearts, and our wills. And give us the grace to respond, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, do you ever read the credits at the end of TV programs? You know, perhaps you've been watching a drama or a murder mystery, something like that. Nowadays, of course, they seem to flash on the screen so quickly, don't they? It's very difficult to actually read them at all. But in the past, I, I'm the kind of person that I often want to know. You know, I've been watching this program and I'm thinking, who's that actor? Where have I seen him before? And I want to read the credits so that I can see his name. You, on the other hand, you may be the sort of person a bit like my wife, who's not interested in the slightest about such details, and who would say, well, once the detective has revealed who the murderer is, it's time to go and put the kettle on. Now, why on earth, you're thinking, why on earth is he talking about TV credits this morning? On a number of occasions in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul ends his letters with various greetings. Sometimes Paul is passing on greetings from people who are with him to the church that he's writing to. Sometimes he singles out individuals in the church to whom he's writing. And sometimes it's a bit of both. 
And if we're honest, it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to treat those endings of the letters a bit like those TV credits. You know, you can imagine you've been working perhaps through a sermon series here at Hook Church, or maybe you've been studying one of Paul's letters in, in, a, in a home group, if you're part of a home group Bible study, and, and you've been wrestling with all this great teaching, what Paul has to say about particular doctrines and, and how we apply it to the Christian life and so on. You've been working all, through all of these things. And yes, okay, there are a few hellos at the end. But those endings are part of the Word of God, aren't they? They're part of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant Word of God, which suggests to us that they are actually a little bit more important than the TV credits. And this morning, as you heard when I read those verses to you, this morning we're dipping into one of the examples of these things, one of those lists of greetings that comes at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. So again, do keep your Bible open uh, in that passage from the end of chapter 4. Notice that Paul both begins and ends this, this final section of his letter by referring to his own circumstances. Verse 7, he says, Tukikas will tell you what's been happening to me. Paul is in prison uh, as he writes this letter. And then notably, and I think quite movingly really, he ends by saying, remember my chains. Well, how would the Colossians remember his chains? What does that mean? They can't go and free him. They can't mount some, some sort of campaign or get together some kind of army to go and bring him out of prison. What does it mean for them, do you think, to remember his chains? Then Paul, as we heard, sends greetings from various people who are with him. He singles out three of his fellow Jewish Christians Christians who, like him, are from a Jewish background. And then we hear these words, which in many ways are the focus of what we're thinking about this morning. At verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you. So in other words, this is a man who is from Colossae. He's known to the Colossians, but is presumably now with Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras, uh, we, we, if we'd been reading the whole of this letter, we'd see Epaphras is a man who's mentioned uh, at the beginning of the letter. He's the person, it seems, who had planted the Colossian church. Paul had never been there. Perhaps Epaphras had planted it as a kind of a spin-off from when Paul was in nearby Ephesus. Anyway, chapter 1, uh, Paul begins by saying, you know how the gospel is spreading and bearing fruit and so on. And he adds, chapter 1, verse 7, just as you, you in Colossae, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And as Paul closes this letter, he wants the Colossians to know that Epaphras is praying for them and has been praying for them and goes on praying for them. And so in this month and on this day of marking IDOP, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, what do we notice in these verses? What do we take away or what should we take away? What, what is it that Paul wants these Colossians to really see in the life of Epaphras? Well, first of all, notice how 
the, the kind of intercessory prayer that Paul is talking about is rooted in knowing Christ. He describes Epaphras, doesn't he, as a servant of Christ Jesus. In that first reference in chapter 1, he describes Epaphras as a, as a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. In other words, prayer is or should be natural to the Christian. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, prayer is the most natural thing in the world. If the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is about being reconciled to God through his Son, Jesus Christ, then prayer is the most fundamental way that we express that reconciliation, that we have been reconciled to our Creator God through his Son. There shouldn't be any such thing as a prayerless Christian. Prayer is the most fundamental expression of genuine faith because both in prayer and in faith, we are expressing, aren't we, our dependence on God, our trust in God. When you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we, come, when we hear the gospel and we come to Christ in repentance and faith, what are we doing? We're expressing our utter dependence, aren't we? on someone else, on Christ. We're saying, I no longer trust in myself. I know who I am, what I am before God, but I trust, I'm totally dependent on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on my behalf. And in the same way, when we come to God in prayer, are we not expressing that same dependence, that same trust? We're bringing to God, whatever it is, whether it's for ourselves, for others, whatever it is, we're bringing to God things because we are dependent on him and we trust in him. Prayer, then, is the most fundamental expression of genuine faith, of knowing Jesus Christ. And the wonder, the joy, the privilege, yes, we might even say the beauty of the Christian life, is that we can come to God, isn't it? That we can come to this creator God who is over all things, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is immortal and invisible. We can come to him and we can come to him and address him as our heavenly father in prayer. You know, I think one of the most chilling verses that I ever find in the Bible comes in uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah is, is addressing uh, people who've, who've turned away from God. And Isaiah says this, first two verses of chapter 59. Behold, he says, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. In other words, it's not that God is incapable or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not Is there a more frightening thought than that? That the sovereign God, he who has created all things and is over all things and knows all things and hears all things, that he chooses not to listen to someone. Isn't that frightening? Isn't that a chilling thought? I think it is. But the Christian, the Christian knows for a certainty that God does hear us. Do you believe that? 
As Christians, we know that God does hear us. How? How is it? Why is it? Well, it's not because of anything in us, is it? It is because and only because of Jesus Christ, that he has reconciled us as sinners to this great God. And we know for a certainty, therefore, that God hears us. The writer of the uh, letter to the Hebrews says in the fourth chapter uh, of the great book, he says, since we, we have a great high priest, speaking, of course, of Jesus, who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet in his case, of course, is without sin. Let us then, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. As Christians, we know, we know that we can come to the throne of grace. We know that God hears us. And we know that only because of Jesus Christ. And I think often persecuted Christians can teach us so much about prayer. Why? Well, perhaps because they, in particular, are most acutely aware of what it is to be totally dependent on God in circumstances where they have nothing else. And perhaps for the same reason, they naturally, almost instinctively, ask more than anything else for you to pray for them. I've encountered that many times over the years, meeting persecuted Christians. That's what they ask for. They ask for prayer from the church in the West. This lady's name is Nabila from Pakistan, one of the countries that was mentioned in the uh, short video earlier. Her husband, Ashfaq, has been in prison for six years now on a blasphemy charge. Earlier this year, the case was brought before court and he was sentenced to death. Now, we should add at this point that no one in Pakistan, to, to my knowledge, has ever been executed for blasphemy. But nevertheless, to receive that sentence is incredibly serious, not only you know, because you think the worst, perhaps, but because to be sentenced to death will mean somebody languishing in prison for years. The appeal process will be a long and tortuous one. If you're known to be somebody uh, sentenced to death for blasphemy, life is going to be terribly difficult in prison itself. And even if and when you are finally acquitted, what do you think happens? You can't just go back to the community that you were part of before you were falsely accused. You've been accused of blasphemy. You've been sentenced to death. You and your family will have to either go into hiding or probably leave the country. Now, Nabila, uh, when the sentence was passed, said she was disappointed. You might say that sounds a bit of an understatement. Um, she says she was disappointed but not discouraged. Because she said that she has left the matter in God's hands. And she expressed to our partner how thankful she is for people who are praying for her and her family. Prayer, true prayer, is rooted in knowing Christ. Secondly, we might say that prayer is committed kingdom work, intercessory prayer. Do you see it as work? It is. It's kingdom work. 
Here in, in Colossians 4, as we've seen, Paul clearly valued uh, Epaphras. He describes him as a faithful servant of Christ. But notice the two things he says about what it is that Epaphras does. So verse 12, he says that Epaphras has been struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then in the next verse, he says, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And not just for you, the Colossians knew him, but for other Christians in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now I say, notice the two things. Actually, I'm going to correct myself there. Because I don't think they are two things. I think it's one and the same thing that Paul is referring to. In other words, in verse 13, when he speaks of Epaphras working hard, I think he means working hard on his knees. Working hard in prayer. But in verse 12, he says, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf. In his prayers. And that's a very strong word that the Apostle Paul uses there. Uh, he writes, of course, in Greek, and, uh, and the word that Paul uses there is a word from which we get our English word of agonizing. Now, nowadays, uh, here in the UK, we tend to use the word agonizing, don't we, when we're making a really, really important decision. You know, I might say to you, well, I was, I was in a restaurant last night, and, you know, I was really agonizing over whether to have the beef and stilton pie or the lasagna, because they both looked really good. Well, maybe not. That's not that serious, is it? But in Paul's day, he uses the word not so much in terms of making a decision, but this whole notion of wrestling with something, struggling with something. And that's how Paul describes Epaphras' prayer life, as he prays for the church he knew well in Colossae, but also for other churches as well. And I want to ask you this morning, have you known that kind of prayer? Wrestling, struggling in prayer for something or someone. I suspect some of us here, maybe many of us here, will say yes. You know, those of us here of a certain age, perhaps, and you know, we've got a son or a daughter, maybe a teenager, maybe now in their early 20s, and they no longer seem to have that interest in Christ that they had when they were younger. And it's painful, isn't it? And we wrestle. We wrestle in prayer for them. Or maybe some of us uh, might have had a, a brother or a sister and before our very eyes we can see that their marriage is falling apart. And we wrestle in prayer before God. That's what Epaphras was doing. That's how he was praying. Now, persecution itself wasn't a particular problem in Colossae, or it doesn't seem to be. If we read between the lines of this letter, the main issue in Colossae, the main reason why Paul writes this letter, as we would have seen if we'd been working through the whole letter, uh, is he seeks to address an issue of, well, there's some kind of mysterious brand of false teaching that has crept into this church. Bible commentators often try to work out exactly what it is, exactly what the nature of this false teaching was. We don't need to worry about that this morning. But the reality is, whether it's, whether it's false teaching or whether it's persecution, those two things have always been the two biggest challenges to the Christian church down the last 2,000 years. Whether it's false teaching from within the church 
or whether it's persecution from outside the church. Those are and always will be the two main challenges to the church of Jesus Christ. The two weapons, if you like, uh, of the forces of evil against the church and against the gospel of Christ. False teaching from within, persecution from outside, and prayer is such an important response to both. Whether we're responding as Paul was and as Epaphras was here in his praying, whether we're responding to false teaching and the impact that it's having leading people astray, or whether we're responding to persecution and the effect that it's having on the church. Prayer is always such a key response. Sorry, I should have pressed that once more. Um, Another person you saw, or somebody you saw in that short video, is this man, Pastor Wang Yi. You may have heard of him. He was pastor of the early reign Covenant Church, a reformed church in China. And uh, at Christmas time, I think it was 2019, he was sentenced, as you saw on the video, to nine years in prison. He'd actually been arrested a year earlier, so he'd been in custody for a year. He was arrested as part of a crackdown on Christian churches. He was eventually accused of inciting subversion of state power. And they threw in as well, apparently, illegal business operations. Interestingly, shortly before his arrest, uh, he spoke and indeed wrote, and you you can read this online, uh, he wrote of his abiding desire to see people in China come to know Christ. And he spoke of his willingness to suffer for that. Well, he is now suffering. His wife is currently under house arrest. Other members of his church have been arrested and detained. Some of them have had bans placed upon them from even visiting uh, the town, the city where the church is. And perhaps most um, movingly, I guess, for the want of a better word of all, uh, his young son, who uh, was being educated in a a Christian um, academy, a Christian school, we were told some time ago his young son apparently now is taken each day by security forces to a communist school for re-education. What does it mean to strive, to wrestle, to struggle in prayer for that man and his family? And who will do so? Paul, as I've already said, adds, of Epaphras, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And not just for you, but the churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And as I say, I think that's not a different category. It's another reference to his praying. Epaphras struggles in prayer. He works hard in intercessory prayer for these people. Prayer, then, is rooted in knowing Christ. Prayer is committed kingdom work and we should see it in that fashion is it a work that you engage in either individually or in groups or as a church and then thirdly and finally intercessory prayer expresses a concern for the church of Christ now don't misunderstand me or mishear me here I'm not suggesting that we only pray for Christians and the Christian church we're, we're to pray and we can pray can't we for all sorts of situations and people. Uh, In his first letter to Timothy, for example, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And of course, Paul was writing in a day when kings and those in authority, who he's referring to, would have been pagans, who, many of whom were very hostile to the Christian faith. So yes, of course, we pray for anyone and everyone. But nevertheless, if we are Christ's people, if we are gospel people, if we recognize that prayer is kingdom work, then a concern for the church of Jesus Christ will express itself in our prayers. Well, it should. What is it that Epaphras prays for? Well, notice in verse 12. Paul says he's been struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In other words, Paphras, as he struggles, as he wrestles in prayer, as he does the, the work of intercessory prayer, Epaphras is praying and goes on praying that these Colossians will remain faithful, that they will mature in, in their faith, that they will be grounded in the truth, that they will be living out that truth according to God's will and purpose. And again, let me ask, does that characterize your praying? If, for example, if you're part of a small group, you have home groups, fellowship groups? Sort of, okay. If you're sort of in a group then, a small group, do you pray for the fellow members of that group? And I don't just mean praying for them when they've got particular needs. You know, somebody's got a hospital appointment or somebody's got a job interview or whatever. Yes, of course we pray for those things. But do you pray for their ongoing spiritual well-being, for their spiritual growth, for their faithfulness to Christ? Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for the outreach initiatives of this church? Do you pray not just when things go wrong, but for the ongoing life, the ongoing spiritual health and well-being and growth and maturity of this congregation? I hope you do. And if so, Will you also do that for the persecuted church? For those who suffer for Christ and, gospel, and the gospel? And that, in a sense, is the challenge that faces you this morning. Um, at Release International, uh, we often say that we are a, a ministry from the body of Christ to the body of Christ. And that's not just some kind of clever marketing cliche. It, it, it reflects, if you like, our biblical convictions on, on what the body of Christ is. Yes, we need Christians and churches to give, to give financially, so that we can support the work and the ministry of those partners that I mentioned earlier around the world. But more than anything, more than anything, we want to motivate, to encourage, to equip, to resource, yes, even to cajole. Christians in this country to pray. To pray specifically as Epaphras prayed specifically. To pray for real people in real places who are really suffering for Christ and the gospel. Bishop Handley Moore, you may never have heard of him. He was an evangelical bishop of Durham at the end of the uh, Victorian era, uh, more than a hundred years ago, he wrote this uh, of these very verses. He said, may our master 
grant more people like Epaphras in the church. He spoke about, you know, we live in a day when there's a lot of Christian activity. But is there much wrestling in prayer? He said, let us pray that we may pray. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Pray until we're really praying. Let us pray that we may pray. Let us give our hearts no rest till we know what it is to do what Epaphras did for the converts of the Lycus Valley, which is where Colossae was. He, that is Epaphras, he bore their souls upon his soul. He yearned with the deepest longing that they might be holy in the sense of a single-hearted and thorough loyalty to the Lord. And he carried this yearning continually and urgently to God in Christ, resolved to reach Colossian lives by way of the throne. What of us? What of you? Prayer is rooted in knowing Christ. Prayer is committed kingdom work. And prayer that kind of prayer will always express itself in terms of a concern for the church of Jesus Christ. Does that describe you? If so, on this uh, international day of prayer for the persecuted church, let me challenge you and encourage you to consider doing so. Let me commend to you, and, and Paul has already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again, our magazine. Now, I know many of you receive this because this is a church that's had strong links with release over many years. But if you're new to this church, if you've never uh, seen this before, please take a copy uh, from the table at the back. But actually, I don't want you just to take a copy. I want you to spend the massive amount of 20 seconds or whatever it will take to sign up to receive it. It's always free. It comes out just four times a year. And it will inform you, and it will resource you. It will equip you to pray for the church, to pray for the persecuted church, that they may stand fast in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ.